crash, blast, mash, blast the system. We wanna get it hype, get it live, get with the mission. We want the crowd loud, this pumping rhythm is hitting. We wanna make it clear, we ain't scared. This is the vision we want, we want, we want, we want. Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Today in the first segment, we are joined by a legendary scholar, the American theologian, philosopher, and environmentalist, John Cobb. Today on the Project Censored Show, we're talking about the Living Earth Movement. The Living Earth Movement inspires global cooperation for the sake of all life on our planet. It also seeks to promote a new human civilization that lives in harmony with the rest of the ecosphere first half of the show with John Cobb. Later in the program, we re-air a talk by award-winning poet and author Lisa Wells, speaking about her book, Believers, Making a Life at the End of the World. It's a collection of biographies of a wide range of individuals who've remained dedicated to preserving their local environments despite the specter of our ongoing climate crisis. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, is international cooperation possible? A bold appeal for a living earth. We are joined in this segment of the show by the faculty co-director emeritus John B. Cobb of the Center for Process Studies. CTR number four, process.org, is the website where you can learn more. John Cobb is an American theologian, philosopher, and environmentalist, and if I may say so, literally a living legend. Described by historian Gary Durian as one of the two most important North American theologians of the 20th century. Cobb is the preeminent scholar in the field of process philosophy and process theology and the author of more than 50 books, 50 books. In 2014, he was elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Cobb is a founding co-director, as I noted, of the Center for Process Studies and Professor Emeritus of Claremont School of Theology and Claremont Graduate University. John Cobb joins us today to talk about International cooperation, is it possible, an appeal for a living earth? John Cobb, it is an honor to have you on the Project Censored show today. Thank you very much. And I am indeed very closely associated with the Center for Process Studies, but I'm also here representing the Living Earth Movement. And the Living Earth Movement, if you want to look that up, it's without any spaces, Living Earth Movement, but it's dot eco livingearthmovement.eco. Yeah. So, John Cobb, tell us about this new publication. Before we get into that, tell us about the Living Earth Movement. This goes back a half century, if I'm not mistaken. The reality of a Living Earth Movement goes back at least half a century. But the name of this organization are just a few months old. So tell us about the trajectory of this work, since you've been involved with it for so long. The work of the Living Earth Movement is, of course, often talked about as the effort to bring about an ecological civilization, which would be a change from what we've been living in, comparable to the change from the medieval period to the modern period. 
So it's not something that a few of us can wave our hands and shout hallelujah about, but I think it's, it's is actually going on. And people are realizing that some of the, of course, there were huge achievements in modernity, but since modernity is ending up committing suicide, it's a good time to think about an alternative. Indeed, about time. In fact, is it past time? I don't believe that you technically believe that it's entirely past time or else you probably wouldn't committing so much time and energy to this. Do you think that there are still things that we really can do that are going to make a difference ecologically? Well, of course, I wrote a little book a little more than 50 years ago, which was entitled, Is It Too Late? And of course, it's always too late for some things. And now it's too late for a lot more things than it was 50 years ago. But sometimes I say, well, this may be the end of human life on the planet, but I don't think we have to assume that. And to avoid that, we will have to think of a different way of behaving than the one we have been engaged in. So if you ask me where probably we should be putting our greatest focus, I would say two places. One of them is creating local communities that are self-sufficient for survival and relatively self-sufficient for a good life. It doesn't mean that they wouldn't ever be able to exchange anything with other communities. But we cannot expect to have a world in which goods can be shipped a thousand miles just quickly. We are likely to have little centers of survival here, there, and the other place. And if they can't feed themselves, they're going to starve. If they can't produce some energy for themselves, they're not going to be able to do very much. So I'm, I'm very interested in efforts, and we have one going on in Pomona to really transform a city. It has a long way to go to achieve the ideals I'm speaking of, but great things are happening. And I, I think it's worth doing these things, even if they won't save us. They function in two ways. One way is that whatever success they have will slightly reduce the rate of worsening of the climate and other environmental matters. And the other is they may produce some centers where there can be survival and the beginnings of a new culture on the planet. Now, we've jumped a good distance. There is another statement that I want to make this more directly related to the organization that calls itself the Living Earth Movement. Let me hasten to say, if our little organization were the only thing there was to the Living Earth Movement, we could laugh about it, that's about all, because of course we are tiny and we're not able to save the world or anything like that. But we think that it may help to have a label that lots of people can subscribe to and have a more of a sense that there is a movement. It helps if you feel like you're part of a movement. So we want to encourage that movement. But then we have the very specific focus on China and the United States. China and the United States are, in some ways, actually already cooperating with respect to 
climate. That is, they have a committee at least, made up of good people from both countries that is charged with that responsibility. Okay, how much they're doing, I'm not at all clear, but at least it reflects the fact that both countries think there should be cooperation between them. But uh, the United States foreign policy is that the United States should dominate the planet. And the number one obstacle to that is China. And Biden for a long time used the language repeatedly, China is our number one enemy. And our policies, military policies and so forth are guided by that understanding. And Biden is right now, I think, in the East, uh, visiting the countries that have agreed they will all work together to contain China. Contain is the word that is used. So that kind of focus of your whole foreign policy doesn't facilitate real cooperation. And it is in danger of generating a war, just as all of our anti-Russian activity over decades generated a war. And if we have a war, at that point, I don't think it'd be worthwhile trying to do anything. The only war the United States can win is a nuclear war, where we don't want to use nuclear bombs against Russia, because Russia could retaliate very effectively. At the moment, China is not equipped to retaliate. I mean, for a long time, it just didn't work on building up a nuclear armament. And so we could destroy all the cities in China and maybe lose Honolulu. John Cobb, as an historian by day, one of the other hats I wear, I'm having a hard time sometimes thinking what decade we're in. Is this the Truman Doctrine? Is this the Cold War reduct? We're talking about Russia phobia. Russia's the enemy. China's the enemy. Again, you know, is it 1948, 1949? Is it 1953? Is it 1961? And of course, speaking with you is an honor. You were active, alive, and doing so many things during those periods. How do you see that historically, given that you lived through those times? What do you think history has to teach us? My very quick statement is that we had a a foreign policy that was not entirely consistent, but that did not preclude the possibility that there could be more than one center of power in the world up until 9-11. my colleague David Griffin called it the new Pearl Harbor because Franklin Roosevelt wanted the Japanese to attack the older ships in his Navy and push them in a way that led them to do it. And that gave him the chance to get us into the wars on both sides. And 9-11 did not get us into a war directly, but it established the neoconservatives as the determinant. Since 9-11, there's only been one foreign policy. And that foreign policy is, in my view, dictated by the transnational corporations. And the transnational corporations really don't like nations because they can do business better the less there are national borders. But if there are nations, it wants to be sure that it can negotiate with one of them about the whole planet. So the job of the United States 
is to destroy all alternative centers of power. And that's been pretty consistent. And I think it's, it can't be equated with any of the others because the people who are advocating it don't recognize it. But in a world like ours, we're going to be ruling a desert. These folks that you mentioned in passing, the neoconservatives, they rose in the wake of the collapse of the Soviet Union and were lobbying to push really hard for what they called an American century, the project for the American century. And they wrote, absent some catalyzing event, catastrophic event like a new Pearl Harbor, they would have a hard time launching such a global, what they called ironically a Pax Americana. But they were talking about a full spectrum dominance military control, like you said, a dismantling of any other alternative power structure or challenge to that kind of new world order that George Herbert Walker Bush had spoke about around the collapse of the Soviet Union. So history is very much in the room here when we're talking about these issues. And it seems that we haven't really moved beyond this, whether you have a Donald Trump in the White House or a Joe Biden, a Republican or a Democrat, they seem to be hell bent on this kind of what appears to be self-destruction in the bigger picture. I think that Trump is less enthusiastic about American control everywhere, but of course he would prefer to function as the bully rather than the one who has pacified everything. There's a difference of tone, but I don't look to either party with any hope for foreign policy. Unfortunately, there's not much discussion going on. Discussions of foreign policy are about specific things, okay? Even with respect to Ukraine, there's almost no discussion of what is the real source of the problems in Ukraine. Very little discussion of the history. It's just Ukraine good, Russia bad. We, of course, are on the side of the good. That's about the quality in the major media. There's a lack of any real historical context, a lack of depth and understanding, and clearly a lack of dialogue. And I want to return to that point on dialogue because I want to talk a little bit more specifically with you about the Living Earth Movement. I want to talk with you more specifically about international cooperation and is it possible. But before we do that, John Cobb, we need to take a quick station ID and a quick break. Just wanted to remind our listeners that you're tuned to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. We're speaking with John Cobb, and we will return to the show and our conversation after this brief musical break. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Today on the program in this segment, we are honored to have with us John Cobb, the American theologian, philosopher, and environmentalist from the Center for Process Studies. We are talking about the Living Earth Movement today and the goals of the Living Earth Movement. And John Cobb, of course, 
is a legendary academic with over 50 books, was elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. He's founding co-director of the Center for Process Studies, Professor Emeritus of Claremont School of Theology and Claremont Graduate University. John Cobb, just before the break, we were talking uh, up to the present about our foreign policy and uh, the many, many challenges of that. So let's get back to the goals of the Living Earth Movement in relationship. You're advocating, and of course others, you're advocating a bold appeal for a Living Earth in a, in a new document, a new booklet, where you are calling for direct negotiations, direct dialogue and conversation between the United States and China. And you mentioned that earlier in the conversation, but I was wondering if you could go into more detail about what's been happening more recently and what you've been advocating for and why. One thing that is unique in my life and worked out better than I had anticipated, that is when I saw that while on the one hand, Biden was repeatedly calling China enemy number one, on the other hand, he was repeatedly advocating, or rather actually requesting China to join in working together on the climate crisis. China, for a long time, did not pay a whole lot of attention to this language of being the enemy of the United States. It certainly had no interest in being an enemy of the United States, but eventually it had to accept the fact that that was our foreign policy. And the United States is a nation that can treat its enemies rather harshly. So President Xi was reluctant to participate in the things that he saw President Biden was organizing. And basically most of the things that go on in the international world if they are guided from Europe, for example, a part of the American system and scheme, Europe is a lapdog these days. Very disappointing to me. But I wrote a letter to Xi and Biden, and I asked Biden to stop using that language. Let's talk about co competitors, something else. China may be number one competitors. Competitors don't have to be enemies. And then in the same letter, I said to President Xi, if President Biden makes any gesture at all, even if it's not a very significant one, keep, bear in mind that may do him political harm, the United States. And that take it then as an occasion for trying to move forward in dialogue. And the amazing thing was that whether it had anything to do with my letter, I don't know. You know, we'll never know what causes it. But Biden made a speech in which he included the notion that we should not use that language. That's pretty significant. I was amazed. I try all kinds of things. I'm always surprised if they would. But then President Xi went to Glasgow. He went late. But I rather think there's a connection between these things. And this was in 2021, the Glasgow Climate Conference. That's right. And there was the announcement of a, this, a new committee being created for cooperation between the two, which is, of course, what I was also requesting. So for a brief period, I felt very powerful. Important to use that power you have to influence folks. And sharing the wisdom that you have is very significant. And I think it speaks volumes 
you know, what you mentioned earlier about the Living Earth Movement, and you mentioned Pomona in Southern California, you said whether or not the things that we're doing ultimately work doesn't mean they're not worth doing. I think that's right. You see, I'm a disciple of Jesus, and Jesus failed in his mission. So I don't think one should think, I think he accomplished a lot, and I hope to accomplish a lot, even if I, I will fail in my mission, I'm sure. I'm not going to save the world. But this sense that it might be possible for us to have some influence. I should say I'm one of very few Americans who has some confidence among Chinese leaders. I have a positive rather than a negative image. That's very helpful if you're trying to have discourse and dialogue. That's right. So I I think I have a responsibility to do what I can in this area. At the age of 97, it's not really a good idea to start new organizations, but I did it anyway. Well, the spirit of the organization is age old, of course. Of course. But no one was really, that I knew of, was really working on the China-U.S. part. You see, I think if the U.S. and China would use their committee, and they have plenty of resources for the committee to gather all kinds of information as a place to really see what would be the steps that, that would make the most difference now, that the two nations could first adopt and then urge the rest of the world to adopt. I think we could really slow down global warming. John Cobb, you talk in this document, the the booklet on is international cooperation possible, you talk about a term picked up from the United Nations literature, ecological civilization. Could you talk about that? That's a term that I became aware of in China. I think the Chinese got it from some... United Nations literature, but no one else picked it up so that for practical purposes, it has been developed in China, but it's not the translation of Chinese words. And the Communist Party adopted it and put it in its constitution. And then the Chinese parliament, which is the primary elected body in China, also put it in the constitution of the nation. So China has committed itself to what it calls ecological civilization. And it's serious about it, but I have to hasten to say what they are serious about is not the full ecological civilization. They really have a double goal. And every provincial governor is evaluated 50% on how the environment is doing and 50% on how much economic growth there has been. And the economic growth is not measured by the standards I would recommend. You understand I'm both saying that means a lot. And I think that the Chinese took strong action to stop population growth and population growth around the 70s was issue number one that we were concerned about. So it's not a minor matter that they've saved the world half a billion people. And it's not a minor matter that they have lifted 800 million people out of poverty by UN figures. These are enormous achievements. 
And it's not a minor matter that they really are working on the environment in China. So I don't want to belittle it, but I would say in ecological civilization, the economy has to be put into the service of the world rather than being a goal that constitutes attention. They haven't gotten there, but they have been supportive of us having conferences on the subject. So we in California have, in Claremont, have had the most influential, influential in China. And uh, there's going to 15th will be held the end of this week. Is there a way that people can see what you all did, given that this has already happened when this show airs? If you can look up Institute for Ecological Civilization, is a major sponsor of the conference. And it has a, a really beautiful website just featuring this conference. The conference is going to be dealing with rural areas, how we achieve ecological civilization in rural areas, how we achieve it in urban areas. And the focus is the creation of communities of concern about this. It fits in with what I said, because means of relating to each other has changed so much, like right now. We need to find out ways of creating communities that do not require face-to-face relations. So I think that would be a, a really a new topic. Thank you, John Cobb. This is the Claremont Eco Forum, Ecological Civilization in Relational Context, that was held May 26 through 28. The website is ClaremontEcoForum.org. I'll make sure that we post it at the website with this program so people can catch up with what was happening there. And I definitely want to share more information about where people can learn more. And you mentioned, of course, livingearthmovement.eco as another website. Is that correct? Yes. That's the website of the organization called Living Earth Movement. The website of the Institute for the Postmodern Development of China is another one that I would recommend to people. It's been around for a long time now. They're the creators of the conference. Ecological civilization and process thought are really a major part of Chinese culture now. These are amazing accomplishments. And John Cobb, you mentioned before the lack of dialogue or depth or context or history in Western media, U.S. media. All of the things that you're talking about here and the things your work is largely overlooked or ignored or dismissed in in U.S. corporate media, commercial media. Exactly. And and so it was quite a remarkable experience to discover that I was a rock star in China. Well, indeed, John Cobb, you're a rock star in more places than China, including over here, over here at Project Censored. But for a Protestant theologian to become a rock star in China, I think it's newsworthy. (laughs) That's front page material, John Cobb, and congratulations on it. John Cobb, is there any way that you, you'd like to share with folks, any way that you can be contacted or any other place that you'd like to share your work with people? I hope that people will recognize we are living in an extremely dangerous period when the collapse of weather has already occurred in northern India and Pakistan. Our newspapers are belittling it if they give any attention to it at all. But what we have been predicting is happening already. And I think that 
Some people have to wait till it happens before they will respond. And I think that may be why our papers are not telling us about it. Nevertheless, I think it's a hopeful time in that sense. So please become aware of the fact that unless we act quickly, we've got to get hundreds of thousands of people who really care about what's happening on the earth to work together to bring pressure upon our government. I think, although our government is most influenced by the corporate world, mass movements of citizens can also have an enormous effect. We have been fragmented, and as we have fragmented, we don't have any effect on our government. If you like the term Living Earth Movement, please start using it and talk to people about it and say, let's make it into a movement. I think the movement halfway exists, but not really as a movement, not in a way that that yet influences what happens in Washington. It's got to happen soon. People don't trust either of the major parties. It's time for I think a third party, or else at least a movement that would force both of those parties to take it seriously. Well, John Cobb, with your help and all of your networks and all of the people that you've touched and your work has touched over such a very long time, over the 20th into the 21st century, you make me hopeful and certainly have me as part of the Living Earth Movement. Listeners can go to livingearthmovement.eco to learn more. The Living Earth Movement is inspiring worldwide cooperation and dramatic action to address the ecological crisis. Our guest in this segment has been Professor John Cobb. John Cobb, thank you so much, not only for your amazing work, but thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule with all the work that you still do. We greatly appreciate it. Oh, thank you for giving me the chance to talk. Up next on the Project Censored show, we'll hear from award-winning poet and essayist Lisa Wells. She recently gave a talk that I hosted regarding her new book, Believers, Making a Life at the End of the World. Stay tuned. It was the same day in another time. I felt your pain and you felt mine. And all that we tried and all of our tricks still couldn't help what couldn't. KPFA Radio, 94.1 FM and Project Censored present Lisa Wells. Her latest book, Believers, Making a Life at the End of the World. In search of answers and action, award-winning poet and essayist Lisa Wells brings us Believers, introducing trailblazers and outliers from across the globe who have found radically new ways to live and reconnect to the earth in the face of climate change, in fact, in the face of climate crisis. But what can be done? Wells embarked on a pilgrimage, seeking answers in dedicated communities, outcasts and visionaries on the margins of society. Bill McKibben says of believers, we are living in an extreme moment and one where it's very hard to know what effective action looks like against cries of a scale we've not before encountered. These accounts of people trying to grapple with that reality are sometimes inspiring, often cautionary, 
and always spur to thinking about how the rest of us might accomplish the most we can. Our guest this evening, Lisa Wells, is author of Believers, Making a Life at the End of the World, also The Fix from 2018. Wells is the winner of the Iowa Poetry Prize. Her poems and essays have been published by the New York Times, Harper's Magazine, and others. Please welcome our guest this evening, master storyteller and phenomenal wordsmith and writer, Lisa Wells. Lisa? Thanks, Mickey. It's really an honor to be here tonight with all of you. Though I can't see your faces, I feel your attention and I'm grateful for it. I'm here to tell you about this book that I believe in that took six years to write. And so I'll try to do right by it as well. I'm a high school dropout and my only formal training was as a poet later in life. So I'm not an expert by any stretch of the imagination. I'm really truly an outsider coming into these communities and trying to find out what they know. I guess the other thing to say is that though I'm coming without the expertise to provide solutions, I do think that holding space for outcasts and iconoclasts who have made an attempt at creating a positive construct in which to live, however fallible or incomplete, is a useful intervention at this point in time too. In addition to taking down these merchants of death who are destroying our planet and making a future for our grandchildren impossible, et cetera, which is very important work. I also think they're kind of an extension of a system that many of us are enthralled to, to greater and lesser extents. So we need visions of how else we might live. My primary feeling at the time was despair. I couldn't see any feasible way to proceed. And out of that um, bloomed, out of that paralysis bloomed a deeper terror that I was powerless to keep anyone or anything I loved alive. The book opens with this epigraph from a Charles D'Ambrosio story where a nun asks this little boy, Ignatius, do you know what the opposite of love is? And the kid says, hate. And she says, despair. Despair is the opposite of love. And that line really stuck with me. And I wasn't even sure why for a long time, maybe until I finished writing the book, but I kind of held it there um, as the epigraph. And, um, you know, when we come to the end of the book, it, it all kind of makes sense. But um, at the time, uh, this disillusionment that I felt uh, produced a kind of despair, which is the absence of hope. And I think he figures it as the opposite of love because it's enervated, you know, not to pathologize despair. I mean, it's a natural reaction for many of us for periods of time, but it's not very active. So the idea that love can be something that we perform in service of life and future generations. So what about the rest of us who are the descendants of colonizers and people who have inherited a way of life that is destructive. How do you fight that gravity? Because it's immense. And I think people often talk about it like it's simple, like, you know, just get your together and be a good person. But I don't think that's true. And I don't think it's fair or useful to characterize it as such. It's actually incredibly hard to fight the gravity of what you've learned and, and what surrounds you. I'll just look at a couple of land restoration folks who we finished the book on and, and who really changed my life and my sense of what's possible. Some of y'all know Ron Good. He's a North Fork Mono elder who uses traditional ecological knowledge to 
repair ecosystems and support the health of the land. These landscapes had been totally choked with brush and illegally dumped human garbage and tons and tons of conifer saplings that were super desiccated. And they had been functioning meadows for generations and they were gathering places for the Mono. And in a partnership with the U.S. Forest Service, one 12-hour day, as they told it to me, a bunch of volunteers came on the land and cleared out all the trash. And then Ron set a cultural burn, which is one of those low-intensity fires that we're hearing more and more about. And it cleared out a bunch of the underbrush. These fires do a lot. They clear the way for fire-following plants. They burn out pests in the duff. And then they take out some of the saplings while leaving the bigger trees, particularly these black oaks that produce acorn and our staple crop. And so it became a functioning meadow again, basically. 15 years later, a spring had bubbled up in the center of it. There was huge species return, tons of edible and medicinal plants, tons of traditional plants used for basketry. Lots of mammals had returned. And this is all in a space of 15 years. Not only had the water come back, not only is the meadow now capable of holding water coming out of the Sierra and preventing drought, it acts as a fire break when these big fires come through. And, and it's home to the praying mantis, which is the natural predator of these beetles that have been just ravaging the trees up there. What's amazing about that to me is that you know, it's not like he just set the fire and then never came back. There were times that they came back and continued to maintain the garden that they'd helped to resurrect. But, you know, it wasn't rocket science. It was something better, which is what happens when people over the course of thousands of years in intimate relationship with the same place, figure out what it takes to really help that place to thrive and prevent catastrophe. So that was kind of a local example. And then quickly to touch on some of the global examples, John D. Liu, he runs these ecosystem restoration camps, which is a situation where seriously degraded lands, people come and they convene a camp. And in exchange for your sweat and labor, you can learn how to restore the land. So people learn how to sink water and build terraces and sow seeds. He's doing them all over the world. He was a documentarian for a number of years. He documented the restoration of the Lis Plateau in China. And as he says it, like after that day, he just knew he wanted to commit the rest of his life to restoring desertified lands. And um, I don't know if you've seen the documentary on the documentary photographer, Sebastio Salgado, but one of the really beautiful things about his story is that he was totally gutted from his time documenting all these famines and wars and really depressed and felt like no one deserved to live. He returned to his family farm, which was totally denuded and wrecked and deforested. And they decided as a family to try to restore it. So within 13 years, a young diverse forest came back and they didn't really know that much about what they were doing when they started. They got some outside help. And he said at the end, you know, he had been as wrecked and desertified as this land. And, and by the end of this process, or once the life began to return, his inner life began to return too. And that was a huge lesson for me, you know, that our desertified inner lives can be restored. I guess the takeaway I 
I hope for you and for me or for readers is um, coming full circle from the epigraph. It ends with some lines from Allen Ginsberg's song, which is the weight of the world is love. And, you know, the weight is too heavy. You have to give it. And I believe that that is true, that it is a painful and heavy burden not to give life to that which gives us life. And it is a painful burden to know that the way that we're living makes life impossible for other species and future generations. And on the other hand, I think it's not guilt that motivates us to act as effectively as the idea of a positive construct. And I think that there is a lot of fun and beauty and pleasure to be had in working together to restore these wounded places and to restore our connections to each other. Thank you. Thanks so much, Lisa Wells. That was a great presentation and a great synopsis of a really long, detailed and pretty heavy book that offers so many insights. And so Lisa Wells, author of Believers, Making a Life at the End of the World. This is a KPFA-sponsored event. Thanks to all of you for coming out here this evening. We are in our Q&A session right now, and I'd love to hear from anybody out there. We've got quite a number of people in attendance, and I know some of you, and actually I know some of you that probably have comments or questions, certainly comments at least. It is Berkeley after all, even if we're virtual. Lisa Wells, let's see if we can get some people here to ask some questions. It's a really detailed book and it's an incredible mosaic of different narratives, you know, from chapter to chapter. And there's so many different things that you weave into the picture from your life and your encounters with so many different people. I really liked when you were talking about holding space for iconoclasts. That's such an important thing. And I feel like you did that all throughout your book and you did it really well. And I think also it makes us think as readers, as everyday people in the world, the the what can I do people. There's the people that you are interacting with and you're describing in the book in many ways. For so-called mainstream or dominant culture, these things seem more outlandish. It's hard to get a clear, nuanced look at what many of these people are saying and doing. And as you said yourself, some may say like, what are you doing hanging around with these folks or you don't seem to fit in with these folks. And I think it's kind of curious, the whole idea of fitting in and the whole idea that we have as humans taking ownership of things. And, and you use the term colonial uh, purposefully and, and I think contextually a number of times, uh, certainly historically so. Um, but I, I come back to that idea of, of the many things that these folks are really trying to do something about and change. There's also a lesson in it for everybody that we can all point to something and find something that we can do in in our lives. So what pragmatic, and I don't want to say advice because I know in your book, you specifically say you don't go far with prescriptions. You quote Rumi. Uh, We can come back to that later. But what are some things that you can talk about or some things you maybe can give as examples that are everyday manifestations of some of these types of very committed individuals and groups that you have spent a lot of time with? Well, I'd be happy to share some of the particulars from their stories. In terms of talking about what the proverbial you and I could do, I don't resist that question on some ideological grounds or whatever. I don't know how to answer it because I am a firm believer in individuals. And I think probably the best plan of action is to do what you love and find a way to put what you love in service to something greater 
I do think it's helpful to think about the generations that would still like a chance to live and really align your efforts with them rather than the flavor of the month or what you're afraid of, because we all have one foot in the grave. That's very general. In terms of these different communities, I think in every case, there's an ecology of transformation. So these are folks who are reevaluating the messages that they've received and have been enculturated by. They're reevaluating their sense of purpose on earth and to other people, you know, like a lot of the healing has to do with learning how to live in community again, because that's not easy to do and becoming responsible to a place like rooting to a place, figuring out where your water comes from, figuring out where your food comes from, figuring out what kind of toxic effluence is coming from upstream and just centering your efforts locally in that way, where you really can affect massive change, as we see in the case of Ron Good in the Meadow. The other thing I'll say, though, the only bigger picture thing that I, that I talk about in the book is John D. Liu and these other guys, this guy Thies van der Hooven, they call themselves the weather makers. And they're <laughs> advocating for the restoration of these strategic places on the planet that if restored, they, they believe, could affect pull weather patterns across regions beneficially, like return the old weather patterns. So rather than having you know, all the moisture suck up and be held in the atmosphere where it can't precipitate as rain as it does over um, the Sinai Peninsula, and then it manifests as these crazy summer storms over Europe, which we've been seeing lately. They believe if you could restore this one key location like Bardwell um, on the Sinai Peninsula, that it could totally shift the moisture so that not only will the moisture return to the Sinai and not only will they, you know, capture carbon and sink water locally, but that it could return some moisture to the U.S. West Coast and return some of the moisture to China. It's pretty amazing and pretty radical, but compared to some of the big geoengineering stuff that's on the table right now, relatively safe, because what are you doing? You're restoring a habitat. So I think that's kind of exciting and promising. I think it's a stellar response to the question. We have a question from an anonymous attendee. Do you believe, and it's related to what you're just saying, do you believe the type of work you've described is sufficient to salvage enough of the planet for life to continue if it were being done on a larger scale as opposed to having to take down the dominant culture? I don't know. I want it to be enough. I don't think any of us really know. What I say at the end of the book is that and it's certainly true for anybody who had the displeasure of reading the IPCC report. It's like, there are some pretty terrifying scenarios and we don't have total control at this point for how things play out. But for every one of those frightening scenarios, there's someone on the land who's sowing seeds for a garden they won't live to see. And to me, there's no better work than that. You know, Even if it's a figurative garden, whatever your pleasure and your work is, we have to try. So I don't know if it'll be enough. Another anonymous attendee commends you for an excellent presentation. They say, I love the analysis of the various cultures. It's also kind of a mind-bending acceptance of a potentially painful transition that we all face. It's a difficult conversation. I would add that because it's a difficult conversation, it's well worth having. And I think your book really spurs that kind of, of conversation in a lot of ways. And you give a lot of ins. There's a lot of different people and different characters in the story that I think give different readers places to, to connect 
if you mm. and sort of take away something that they can do that then gives them ideas of things that they could do. Like you just said, what do we do? Um, do we tilt at windmills and shake our fists at the corporate man? Um, sure. I mean, but we also do what we can do where we are. Yeah. Right. And, and make those kind of changes, which I think you were pretty clear about. I feel like often we're given this false choice between either hedonistic acceptance, you know, like let's just get drunk or whatever, or be miserable. And to me, that just seems like your misery and your guilt and those kinds of things might be useful in temporary bursts, but it's not a sustaining thing. I also just want to say the idea is that there's a lot to gain to talk about my own backyard. Literally, I had never kept a plant alive in my life. I was like a total, you know, like the grim reaper plants would cower when I came near. And as I wrote the book, I turned this weedy yard into a garden and figured out how to make the soil on this little plot work. And that's not going to save the world, but it is representative of a sea change and it gives me so much pleasure. And so I think reconnecting to each other in these ways and taking something that's kind of desiccated and homogenous and turning it into something vibrant and a, a source of life for like pollinators, there's pleasure in that. You're listening to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. We'll continue our program after this brief musical break. Another one of our attendees asks, is the Bioneers movement relevant to your, to your topic? I don't know enough about it, but, but it, had, it did come across, um, you know, I feel like that was an adjacent world that would come through um, my research, but I, I didn't dig into their stuff. But I know that some of the people I'd written about have given presentation for Bioneers, so I, I would like to learn more about it. Joanna Monqueros asks, what do you feel could be a timeline for the end of modern civilization? Dust off your crystal ball. If we don't make massive changes, and this, this is right on another attendee that said, when you say we all have one foot in the grave and won't take too long, how long do you think we have? Yeah, I was actually referring just to our mortal lives. It's helpful to remember that we're all going to die, as corny as that sounds. I think when you're facing this work, it's helpful to remind yourself how small you are. You're not going to save the world, just you, but you can do your little part. In terms of timeline for collapse, I sort of think we're seeing it. I think it's not something that happens one night. I think it's a process of decline. I think you see it as these big disasters happen or plagues or anything that disrupts the supply chain, how quickly things break down. So I think that's why actually this transition movement makes sense because there's really no reason to wait. The time is now to start figuring out like, how might I take care of my needs in terms of food and water and shelter? And 
And the other thing I will say is the hard skills, as they call them, like all the survival stuff, it's useful, but it's really pales in comparison to social technologies because many hands make light work. And when we cooperate together with our neighbors, we can make amazing things happen. And one person knows a lot about berries and another person knows a lot about shelter building and together you make a go of it. So I'm definitely not advocating this individualist doomstead kind of thing. I didn't think that the kind of climate catastrophes we're seeing lately, I didn't think it would happen so soon. I mean, honestly, it's been surprising to me. Another attendee asks if you're familiar with hope punk and solar punk, uh, hopeful, positive science fiction. No, but I want to (laughs) be. The same person asks after writing this book, where did you end up in your spiritual journey? If you in fact have one. You know, I feel like this took years off my life, this experience of writing the book. I was wrestling with a lot of the, not just the scary data, but like a lot of the questions, which to me, I think if we're honest are not really easily answered. If anything, I feel like my view is deepened and more complex, like my sense of our dilemmas, but I don't have, I have less of a sense of surety about any of it, which one would hope would be the outcome of deep study. But yeah, I think now my main interest is in implementing some of what I preach about at the end of the book, which is um, actually walking the walk and um, trying to uh, recover some of the relationships that have been lost to, I mean, I blame the iPhone basically, uh, you know, and the like always busy sort of, you know, consumer capitalism, we're always working. Um, So, you know, trying to actually return to some of those punk ethics around, you know, uh, resisting uh, this machine that wants us all to orient as if we're brands and corporations and getting to know my watershed, et cetera. But I think the next book will probably be about group dynamics and shared psychology and how to cooperate with others, how to play well with others. Another attendee asked, is there an idea or belief you've come across that gives you peace of mind or spirit despite knowing what the future likely holds? Yeah, I mean, I think the idea of legacy, that we have an opportunity as individuals and as communities to really leave a positive legacy and that we don't really know how any of it's going to play out. So these gardens that Phoenicia attended for 40 years they might still be hanging around when somebody desperately needs them when they cross their path by luck. These meadows that Ron has restored could prevent the next catastrophic wildfire from, you know, torching the canopy of these ancient black oaks. So to me, just this idea of active love as legacy, that is the thing that, that fuels me. I don't know if that answers the question. Well, you do get into that in your last chapter. You kind of coalesce some of the ideas and you say at the end to begin stoking what Daniel Quinn called the fire of life. And then you quoted Rumi saying, let the beauty we love be what we do. There are hundreds of ways to kneel and kiss the ground. And and you then said that's about as prescriptive as you care to get. Yeah. Let the beauty we love be what we do. It's very simple it feels good to give life to its mutual amplification to give life to that, which gives you life. One of our attendees has a comment 
saying communities need to develop the local resources to replace commercial resources. These are the most crucial to a stable transition. The co-op model needs to be funded at the scale of utilities, uh, which should also be public. <laughs> Government would naturally be responsible for such if not under the thumb of the marketplace. Any, any comments on that model? I mean, I endorse this view. If anyone's gonna do it, it's gonna be you guys in California, maybe followed by Seattle, the city, none of the adjoining counties. Gavin says, wonderful presentation. I'm not only inspired to pick up Ms. Wells' book, but also reread some Abbey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that opening to Desert Solitaire is, it's yeah. like the best song you wanna play over and over. Yeah, and I have to say, uh, Believers Making a Life at the End of the World, it's a fascinating, riveting read. It's got a lot of ups and downs. It doesn't shy away from the major challenges we face, but it really offers, I think, real hope in terms of what we can do and just by looking at what people are doing. And I think it's really inspiring. And I honestly can't imagine how difficult it was for you to write, write this. And you're also a phenomenal writer. And I, I really enjoyed reading just the passages I mean, just the writing alone it's obvious that you're also a poet. So oh, thank you so much. Um, but I would also like to take this opportunity to remind us all, this is an author talk and they have a book and Berkeley or wherever you live probably has hopefully left still a fantastic independent bookstore. Yeah. Um, like where Lisa was from in Portland, there was Powell's. And so rather than go online and habitually go to the Amazons of the world, go to a real independent local bookstore and pick up a copy of either this or any of your other favorite books and support those local establishments because they are our community. Please consider doing what you can if you're able to actually get a hold of the book, donate it to a teacher, donate it to a school, donate it to a library. These are really great things that you can do to help share Lisa's work with other people in the community. And with that, I want to thank you, Lisa Wells, for taking time out of your schedule to speak with us. Thank you so much. Thanks all of you. Everybody be well. We'll see you next time. Supporting human conditions, not free market propaganda and corrupt politicians. Cause they own by special interest groups that fund their campaigns. You've been listening to The Project Censored Show, established in 2010 by myself, along with Peter Phillips. I'm the executive producer, Mickey Huff, of this program. Anthony Fest, our senior producer. Thanks to you, our listeners. For tuning in, we'll see you next time. Alibis, guys, another guys of democracy, politics, and the apocalypse. Got the skies like an ominous.